sweet spirit of the Most High God, I worship you. I give you praise. You are the teacher. You are the teacher. I ask that you uncover and unveil your word to us this evening. Not my words, but your words. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. The Bible, when it was written, and this I hope you will never forget, and you will spread it to others. When the Bible was written, the Bible was not written in chapters and verses as we have it today. The Bible was not written in chapters and verses. The Bible, that is, each book was written as a letter just a letter you know that flowed from the beginning to the end what happened is that when king james asked the churches the the translators of the bible to translate the bible they went ahead and followed that same thing so when the bible was translated to english it was translated as a book. As a book. It was not in chapters or verses until I think one archbishop, I can't remember his name now, that went one day and said, See, let's put this book into chapters for easy reference. So the archbishop gave that command. So they now went and put the books into chapters but not verses but chapters few hundred years down the line a french guy also said hmm, yes in chapters but let's also make it easier for people to reference the bible do you know what he did he decided to move take it a notch further it was the french guy that now put it in verses so the bible we have today now has chapters and verses but it was not so originally now why am i saying this because if we read the bible holistically like a book we will have better understanding of the bible what has happened is that we go straight to one verse quote it and form a doctrine from that verse and that has been causing a lot of trouble when it comes to doctrinal differences in the church but when you read that whole book, you might not even need to read the whole book, but if you read a lot of the pretext and a lot of the post-text, what you arrive at, you arrive at a complete, balanced, that is the word, complete, balanced understanding and viewpoint of the word of God. And this is very, very important when it comes to understanding the scriptures. Very, very important when it comes to understanding the scriptures. So bear that in mind. So what are we talking about today? Is this popular subject that says, once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. Where did that doctrine stem from? That doctrine stemmed from John Calvin. John Calvin 
was a French theologian that was part of the re uh, reformers. He came up with a lot of doctrines. Some of the popular doctrines that John Calvin came up with is number one. This absolute sovereignty of God. He came up with that doctrine that God is absolutely sovereign. He came up with a doctrine also that, that of predestination and unconditional salvation. What does that mean? That God, before time, had predestined people that will be saved. Then another popular doctrine that he also came up with is this one. That because God has predestined people that will be saved, that once you are saved, you are always saved. Now we're going to look at that. And they had a lot of scriptures that they used to support that doctrine. And some of the scriptures are this. The most popular one, of course, if he talked about predestination, is where the Bible talked about predestination. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Where the Bible says that, Moreover, those that he predestined, this he also called. Whom he called, this he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. So based on this, he said, God has done all of this, that when he predestined you to be saved, and you finally got saved, he justified you, he glorified you, he called you, he did all those things at once. So because he has done all those things, you cannot lose your salvation. That's number one. So another scripture that they went, the, the second point that they used to um, support their viewpoint is that no one can take you away from God and salvation. And what scripture did they use that? Did they support that? Still in that Romans chapter 8, when you go further down to verse 33 and verse 34, he said talking about what can separate you from the love of Christ. And he said, they're listing out everything. He said, sickness, disease, pestilence, persecution, this one, that one, that one. He said, he listed a lot of, he said, none of this can separate us from the love of Christ. So today, because of that, you cannot lose your salvation. The third thing that they used to support that viewpoint is that you are regenerated. That when you got saved, you were regenerated based on 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. All things are passed away, now all things are new because you are a new creature. The other point that they used to support their viewpoint is that you have the Holy Ghost within you. You know that, but if you want a scripture on that, John 14, verse 17 is a good scripture on that. The fifth thing is that you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You see that in Roma, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. The next point that they used to support their viewpoint is that you have eternal life. That one is scattered all over the Bible. A good example is John chapter 3, verse 15 and verse 16. Say because you have eternal life, you cannot lose it. You have that life that lasts forever. You cannot lose it. Another point that they used to support their viewpoint is that no one can snatch you away from the hand of Christ. This one was Jesus that spoke it directly. And he spoke it in John chapter 10, verse 28, where he said, And I give them eternal life, 
and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. They say, because Jesus said this, that means you can never, you know, that was just saying, you are always saved. The final point I'm going to give you that supports that viewpoint is that the God, the Bible says, this is Paul writing to the, to the Jews. He says, see, that God said he will never leave us nor forsake us based on Hebrews 13 verse 5. So these are the scriptures and many more. These are just a few. I wanted to just show you that they used to support their point. So that leads me to something else I want to point out. I should have said that at the beginning. What is that? When it comes to understanding a doctrine, understanding scriptures, there are particular scriptures that you should not contend with when you read it in its context. And what scriptures are, 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 are those? Listen carefully. I always tell this to my wife. I always tell this to the members of the church. Listen carefully. And this is very important. Any scripture that is a direct quote of God the Father, a direct quote of Jesus, God the Son, when read in context, please never, ever argue with it. I've seen a lot of Christians, teachers of the Bible, preachers, that have taken scriptures out of, out of, and um, 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 formulated the doctrine because they did not just follow this simple, this simple rule of exegesis. What is exegesis? Understanding the context from which a scripture comes from. That is taking the meaning of a scripture from its context. What a lot of preachers do, and I used to do that till I had an encounter with the Holy Spirit, is that they do in injustice. Exegesis is taking the meaning from the scriptures. Injustice is you giving a scripture meaning. You have an idea, you go to the Bible to look for a scripture that will support your idea. So it is an external idea being injected into the scripture or as we say it, we try to make a scripture say something that you want to push or a doctrine you want to push. A lot of preachers do that. And I'll give you a quick example. When preachers want to preach about sacrifice, why you should sacrifice to God, why you should give your all, where do they usually go to? Where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. And they use that scripture to say, when you sacrifice, God will give you more. God will give you more when you sacrifice. Hey, when you give that, it that pains you. Hey, that is when you have abundance. That is injustice. That is not exegesis. What does that mean? That means using that scripture of Abraham sacrificing Isaac to support your doctrine of sacrifice is actually wrong. It's fallacy. It is wrong teaching. It is wrong doctrine. Because... 
the reason for that um, sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham was clearly stated in the first verse. Clearly, for everybody to see. You cannot read that, that first verse and come and preach sacrifice from that scripture. That scripture has nothing to do with giving to God or sacrificing to God. It is wrong doctrine. It is wrong scripture, rather, to support a good doctrine. It's given to God, good. It's given what pays it to God, good. Yes. There are scriptures to preach or to use to preach that. A good example is David. When that angel was killing the children of Israel because of the sin of Saul. And David went to God and said, what can we do to stop this plague? God told David, it's because of Saul. That Saul killed some, some, some uh, what are their names now? Killed some of the people of um, Gibeonites. Oh, thank God I have a Bible scholar in the house. God bless you, Ify. Kill the Gibeonites. See, because of that, that this plague is coming because Joshua and the Gibeonite caught a covenant hundreds of years ago and Saul flouted that covenant. Because of it, this is happening. And what did uh, David do? David ran towards where the plague was coming. The angel was killing. And he got to the threshing place of one guy. He told the guy, please sell me your land so I can sacrifice to the Lord in your land and stop the plague from coming further down. And the man said to him, no, take it for free, my Lord. You are the king. Take it for free. Sacrifice to the Lord. David said, no, I will not give to God what I did not pay for. That is a good scripture to use to talk about that. But using Abraham and Isaac as a scripture to support sacrifice is wrong. What did the Bible says it say in verse 1 of that Genesis? It says, see, God wanted to test Abraham. What was he testing? Number one, Abraham's faith. Will he trust me enough that even if he gives me his son, I can deliver his son to another one to him? God put it there. This was a test. It was a test of faith. That's why Hebrews recorded it in Hebrews 11, where the Bible talked about the hallmark of faith. It has nothing to do with giving to God. God was not asking for an offering, neither was he asking for a sacrifice. What he was asking for is trust. Does Abraham trust me? Does Abraham have faith in me? Why am I talking about it like this? Because I have done it. When you see me talking about what preachers do, is actually what I have done in the past. And because the Holy Ghost took me on a journey, and mm, 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 why add me? I am trying to correct some of the wrong teachings I am doing. I am not speaking against any pastor or any preacher. I am correcting myself. So at the end of the day, when I stand before God, I will stand blameless. People listen to me and be like, this guy is talking about preachers, preachers. No, I am preaching. I am correcting the mistakes I have made in the past because I have also preached sacrifice from that scripture. And why did I preach it? Because I heard teachers, pastors of, above me preach it Without me going to go and study for myself, I collected it and I preached. <laughs> so I'm correcting myself. That is what repentance and restitution is. Your repentance is not complete until you restitute. So when I hear me talking about preachers do this, it's me that I'm correcting. 
I'm writing the wrongs of the past. So I'm not castigating any preacher. So when you do that in suggestions, you are trying to give your meaning to the scripture. And that happens when you don't read it. When you don't read it in its context. In its context. Hallelujah. So what am I saying? When you read the Bible, says God said Oh, Jesus is speaking. You have a Bible that has red letters. The words of Christ in red letters. You see those words in red letters? Don't just start arguing. Is it, it's not really what Jesus meant. No, read it in context. Then you know what he meant. Jesus, the, or you read in the Old Testament where the Bible says that God the Father said. And you're saying, no, it's not really what he said. That means that you have grown so much above God that your wisdom is above God's wisdom. Ask my wife. Hey, we really have Bible study together. We only have a lot of conversation, you know, about the Bible. Anytime she tries to say, Jesus, maybe, I say, eh, not in this house. Never, ever, ever in your life, in this my house, argue with God the Father or with the words of Christ. Why? We can never, ever be wiser than God. Following that rule alone will solve a lot of the wrong doctrines that has saturated the modern church. Just listening to God. His word, his, his direct speech reported. Or Jesus, his words, his direct speech. Following it, without argument, we erase all the things you'll be hearing from the pulpit. And when you start hearing those things from the pulpit, you'll be marking it bad. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. The Holy Spirit on your inside will tell you also. That's what I'm trusting God for here. I will show you scriptures. I will let the Holy Spirit on your inside help you reach a conclusion. Hallelujah. Now, that being said, what is the counter-argument? The counter-argument is that once saved, you stand a risk of losing your salvation. So, we're also going to look at scriptures that support that. We've looked at the scriptures that support once saved, always saved. Let's look at scriptures that address the counter-argument. But before we look at scripture that address the counter-argument, usually, what usually happens when we start looking at those scriptures is that fear in, in the heart of most Christians starts. <laughs> fear comes. Because the way those scriptures are, <laughs> like in secondary school, we say, afraid will start catching you. <laughs> fear comes. You start being afraid of one thing or the other, when we start looking at those scriptures. So I want to talk about fear. Just give me two minutes to talk, to talk about fear. Is it right or is it wrong for a Christian to fear when issues like this are taught in the church? I say yes, it is right for a Christian to fear. But there's a kind of fear they should have. And what is that fear? The Bible talked about it. It is the fear of God. Listen to me. If you're a Christian and you don't have the fear of God, you need, you need to start a journey, a quest in your Christianity to a place where you fear God. The fear of God 
is not trepidation. It's not phobia. Fear and phobia are two different things. What is phobia? Phobia is fear that paralyzes you. When that fear comes, you are paralyzed. My last son doesn't like it when we go over a bridge, especially a long bridge, and if it's over a body of water, he doesn't like it. In the car, he's like, until we go across. That is phobia. Any fear that paralyzes you is not good. It's not good. But there is healthy fear. Let me explain what healthy fear is. And my wife does this a lot to my kids. Is And we all do it to our kids and our loved ones. What is it? It is putting the fear that of danger around. Of danger around. My boys ride their bicycle. But when they send them to school, but before they started riding their bicycle to school, when they are still very young, in primary school, they are still learning how, how to ride their bicycle. I used to ride with them. So we'll ride to school. When it's time to bring them back, I'll ride to school and I'll ride them back. I don't do that anymore now. But whilst they were still very young and still learning the trade, when I ride them to school, I am constantly putting fear in them, the good one. We get to a junction. I'll say, hey, guys, wait, 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 stop, 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 stop. The way you get to this junction, you have to look left, right, look left, look, 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 and be sure that there is no car coming. That if you don't look and you cross, a car will cross you. What am I doing? I am putting healthy fear in them. That healthy fear in them saves their life or will save their life. And he's saving their life today. I did that, did that, did that, did that for months, years, till I was sure that the fear has entered them and I stopped riding with them. So they go to school on their own and they come back because I am sure I've instilled the fear of cars into them. But do they ride to school on their bike? Yes. Why? They have the fear of cars, but they don't have the phobia of riding the bike. They are two different things. When you have the phobia, they will, not, they will not be able to ride their bike. So what now happened? Uh, I don't know if it, is, it should be years. A few years after the first one started riding, the second one started riding their bikes. One day we went riding in the park. The first one bumped into a light pole and he had a serious gash on his forehead. Serious gash, deep gash. He had to go to the hospital for them to glue it. It was very deep. What happened? And this is a natural reaction of a woman. My wife was like, no, hey, you should not ride again, no, hey, yeah. And I stopped and said, stop that, don't do that. Don't say that to his hearing. That is now phobia. She's trying to now put phobia in them so they will not ride. Because that is the one that paralyzes you. Because you had that accident when he wants to go to a bike. When that phobia comes, he will not ride. This is what happens to a lot of people, especially in this country that we live in, they can't even go out. They have so much anxiety and phobia of people. They call it social anxiety that they can't even go out. It paralyzes them. That is the one that is bad. So I stopped her from doing that. 
Don't put phobia in them. They already have a fear of what will kill them, which is cars. Why did he bump into the pole? He was not looking. He was looking, he was looking at other, something else and he bumped into the pole. I said, don't put phobia in him because if his phobia comes, he'll, it will paralyze him and he will never ride the bike again. And this has happened to a lot of people that have had car accidents. Because of that car accident, maybe they got injured. You see today, they don't want to drive again. That is phobia. It's not fear. I hope that is right. So, once I start showing you these scriptures, it is the fear of God that I believe the scriptures will instill in you, not phobia. Glory be to God. Now, to support this fear thing, the Bible says in Psalm 2, verse 11 and 12, serve the Lord with fear. So, you can't be of service to God. You cannot be a Christian if you don't have godly fear. It's not possible. Say, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. And that scripture on that is Philippians 2 verse 12. And this is a very good one. And I like the chapter of the Bible where it is, Philippians. Why Philippians was God, was Paul thanking the church of Philippi for supporting his ministry. Philippians were amongst those that were giving to his ministry. What do, what do teachers do today or preachers do today? The one giving to them, they pamper. They, they pamper them. They are the, the, the pastor's good books. <laughs> not Paul and not me either. The thing about me is that the closer you get to me, the more hard I, I, I am with you. That's the truth. If I'm not hard, with, hard on you, then you're far from me. <laughs> the closer you are, you are to me, that's the, that's, yeah, I'm more hard on you. What did Paul say to these guys? That are always giving. He says, see, guys, hey, in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 2. So therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. He told them, see, walk out. Walk out your salvation with fear and trembling. So you see that this salvation that we say we have must be walked out. Don't worry. Today will just be for introduction. We're going to handle this subject this week and next week. And listen to me. Everyone here, make sure, make sure you join us next week. Because half knowledge is dangerous. If you only get what I say today and you don't get the balance next week, it's dangerous. It's better that you don't even, you don't even hear what I have to say today. Half knowledge is dangerous. Because of time, I'll be splitting it into two. I can't teach you everything today. So to be today and next Tuesday. So to them, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So being saved might not just be enough. You need to work it out. You work it out with fear and with trembling. Because of time. Okay, this one is very important. You know this. The Bible says in Psalm 111 verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If as a Christian, you've lost the fear of the Lord, please go and find it. Find it with trembling. It's going to save you, especially in these end times we are living in. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Other scriptures, Job, Job 28, verse 28, just write them down and we'll read them. Proverbs 1, verse 7. 2 Timothy 
1 verse 7 as well. Glory be to God. Second uh, Corinthians 5, 9 to 11. I'm going to read this subsequently. I'm going to come back to this Second Corinthians 5, 9 to 11 sometime uh, in the midst of this conversation. So, first, let's look at what salvation is. What is salvation? When we understand what salvation is, you also understand that what the Calvinist said is right. Okay, let me put it this way. That what the Calvinists believe, what John Calvin said, is not wrong. If you understand what salvation is. A perfect understanding of what salvation is clears a bulk of the argument. So what is salvation? Salvation is regeneration of the human spirit. What is regeneration of the human spirit? God, speaking to the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36, talked about it. He said that he will pour clean water on us. Not only will he pour clean waters on, on us, he said that water will make us clean. He now said in verse Ezekiel, for those that want to write it down, Ezekiel 36 from verse 25 and 26. He said he will take the heart of stone out from us and give us a heart of flesh. But he didn't stop there. Now see what salvation is or what regeneration is. He now said, after I've done this, after I've washed you, after I've taken the heart of stone out from you, the third thing, he said, I will now put my spirit inside of you. Then I will put my spirit in you. It is the coming in of the Holy Spirit in the human spirit that regenerates your human spirit. That is what salvation is. So, when the, when the Spirit of God, Christ, comes on your inside, Christ, which is the Holy Spirit, also comes with the life of God. He comes with the life of God. This life of God is what we call eternal life. Eternal life. Some translations use the word everlasting life. But I prefer eternal life because everlasting life confuses people. Because the, the, the everlasting life makes it sound that it is when Christ's life comes into you that you will live forever. But that is not true. Whether you accept the life of Christ, eternal life in you, or not, you will still live forever. Because your human spirit was created to live forever. So your human spirit lives forever whether it is saved or not saved. So I prefer using the word eternal to differentiate the human spirit that have been generated because of the life of God that is inside it. The Greek word for eternal life, which is the life of God, is the word zoe. So, when zoe enters your human spirit, 
Listen carefully. I'm choosing my words carefully. When Zoe enters your human spirit, your human spirit gets saved. Your human spirit gets saved. I can show you some scriptures on that. John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 says this. Please, if you have your Bible, turn to wait. Turn to wait. There's something about reading the word for yourself, not just hearing it and happen to read it. 1 John 5, verse 11. This is John speaking. He said, This is the testimony. What is the testimony? God, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. If you have a manual Bible, please use your pen and underline this life is in the Son. We're going to come back to that very soon. That phrase is so important in understanding this subject of saved and always saved. This life is in the Son. In the Son. In the Son. He now said, He who has the Son <laughs> has life. In other words, if you don't have the Son, you don't have life. He now said, He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. He says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you because you believe him and you have him that you have eternal life and that you may you may continue that is the second phrase I want you to underline underline you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Underline it. The word may there is very important. May. May is conditional. If you stop believing, what will happen? <laughs> Your guess is as good as mine. You may continue to believe in the Son of God. And that scripture which you all know about is John 3 verse 16. So just put it down. Another one is John 15 verse 4. Where the Bible talks about abiding in me and I will do what? I will abide in you. It says that's John 15 verse 4. It says, as the branch cannot bear fruit of its own, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. So, the first, you're going to underline two phrases there. The first is, abide in me, and I in you. Please underline it. The next one is, Unless, there is a condition there again. 
And let me say this. These words are the direct words of Jesus Christ. The direct words of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus speaking. He said, abide in me, then I will abide in you. He now said, unless is a conditional word, just like may, unless, unless you abide in me, I said, unless it abides in the vine, there is no branch, can bear fruit, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. What does that mean? For a branch, I'm going to use this. It's not a branch, but let me use it. For a branch, let's say this is the vine, right? And these green grasses are the branches. He says, unless this branch is abiding continually on the vine, permitted to use the flower as a fruit, it cannot bear fruit. Once the branch detaches from the vine, what happens? The branch dies. When you read further, he talked about it. The branch dies and it cannot bear fruit. So what keeps you is continual abiding and attachment to the vine. Have that picture at the back of your mind. It's going to, be, going to come handy as you progress. So now you've understood what eternal life is and how it happens. Let's talk about the three-dimensional man and three dimensions of salvation.